Uh, for centuries, the doctrine of election has been a controver controversial subject uh, within the church. Uh, there's been endless debates and much ink has been spilled um, over this doctrine. Um, now, I'm aware that some of you here today um, may not even know what the doctrine of election is. Some of you may know and may disagree with it. Um, some of you may agree with it, regardless of where you stand with it, whether you know it or not. Um, I think we can all agree that this is a very sobering topic. It's a very sobering doctrine. And um, I'm going to go ahead and try to treat it as carefully as I can, and I will tread lightly. Uh, so uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to come together again this uh, Sunday morning. Thank you for giving us one day in seven to rest, to refocus our lives, our hearts toward you, toward heaven, and toward the cross. Thank you, Father, uh, for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the, the message of the gospel. We ask, Father, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds again today, that we, we may receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, now, <clears throat> as most of you know, we're currently going through the, the Gospel of, um, of Matthew. Uh, we began our exposition of Matthew last year, and we took a break from it so we can uh, go through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, now that we've returned to the Gospel of Matthew, I want to begin by giving you a brief synopsis of the book of Matthew and show how it is divided into five teaching discourses. Now, the first of these discourses is found in chapters 5 through 7, where we find the Sermon of the Mount. The second discourse is found in chapter 10, and this is where uh, Jesus gives his disciples instructions on their first missionary trip. Uh, then the third teaching discourse starts in chapter 13, and this is where we are today, uh, where Jesus begins to teach crowds in parables. Now, why are these divisions important? They're important to know because it will help us understand why Jesus resorted to using parables when speaking to crowds. When Jesus first began this public ministry, he didn't begin by using parables. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that immediately after Jesus had finished his temptation period in the wilderness, he began to proclaim the Gospel, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus' public ministry began with, an extent, with extended discourses and on the kingdom of God and, um, and sermons such as what we see on the Sermon of the Mount. Now, notice when Jesus finished preaching on the Sermon of the Mount, the crowd, the, Matthew records that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. However, no one was asking how to be saved. Now that's important to know because as we go on here, that's, that's, um, that's a red flag as to why Jesus began to teach in parables. Um, ten chapters deep into the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is still teaching and preaching the message of repentance and faith in the Jewish synagogues and in public areas. However, it does become apparent in chapter 11 that people are becoming increasingly hostile to the message of the of the gospel. So, as a result of people's increased hostility and hard-heartedness um, about uh, Jesus' message, uh, Jesus begins to pronounce woe in chapter 11 to some of the cities where he had done most of his mighty works. 
namely in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. In chapter 12, as Jesus continues his ministry, we come across an incident where Jesus heals a man of a demonic possession. The Pharisees were quick to claim that Jesus was performing these miracles by the power of Bezalzbal, or Bezal, it was Satan. <laughs> it was Satan, all right? Even after witnessing all these miracles Jesus had done, the Pharisees still had the audacity to ask Jesus for a sign that he was the Messiah. So it is at this point that Jesus decides he's no longer going to speak to the crowds plainly as he once did. He's going to begin to speak to them in parables. Now, the definition of a parable is wide, and so I'm just going to use a very common, <laughs> common description, which is a parable is that is, <laughs> it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Right? Okay. So we come to today, today's passage. All right, Jesus. Um, if, if you notice, if you, last week's uh, sermon, uh, when uh, G, uh, Jeff preached on um, the parable, parable of the sower, this um, passage that we're looking at today is kind of sandwiched in between. So Jesus gives this parable of the sower, and then we have today's passage, and then Jesus explains to the disciples what the what the parable meant. So. In today's passage, the disciples, you know, Jesus gives the parable of the sower, and then afterwards, the, uh, the disciples take Jesus aside, and they're like, yo, man, why did you start teaching them in parables? And Jesus responds to the disciples by giving them a direct, yet probably surprising um, answer. He says to them, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. Now, whether they knew it or not at the time, the disciples had been given a gracious privilege of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of God, while at the same time, Jesus began to purposely keep hidden the mysteries of God's kingdom from outsiders, as the Gospel of Mark puts it. In other words, <clears throat> Jesus began to veil the message of the kingdom of God as an act of judgment for their unrepentant hearts and unbelief. There's a parallel here in the rebellious attitude of Israel in Isaiah's day as they continued to, as they continuously rejected God's plea to repent of their sins and turn back to him. This is why in verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed, indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So, God, just as God had acted in judgment against Israel, in Isaiah's day, by closing their eyes and ears to Isaiah's preaching, so too Jesus began to act in judgment by speaking to the unrepentant crowds in parables, thus veiling the message of the kingdom of God. Now, God's judgment is displayed in many ways throughout scripture. Um, in some cases, he gives people over to their sinful desires, as you see in Romans 1. 
Uh, in some cases, he hardens people's hearts, as he does to uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. And in other cases, he blinds people's eyes and ears, as is in the case of these unrepentant Israelites. Now, I know some of you Bible scholars may be wondering, doesn't the scripture say that it's the devil that blinds people's eyes so that they're not able to receive the gospel? And you would be correct. The answer is yes, the scriptures do state that the devil does blind people's eyes to the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter, uh, verse 3, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice, though, the type of people that Paul says remain blind to the gospel because of the devil. It's unbelievers. Unbelievers are blinded by the devil. According to the parable of the sower, which we saw yesterday, or heard yesterday, or I'm sorry, last week, um, these would be the people described as the seeds that fell along the path where the devil comes and snatches away what has been sown in their heart. Now, I would venture to say that in both Isaiah and Jesus' case, God is veiling the eyes of what are called nominal Israelites and nominal Christians. If you don't know what a nominal Christian is, a nominal Christian is one that is by, that's a Christian by name only. They might have had a religious experience at some point in their lives. Maybe they came down and said a prayer, came down the aisle, said a prayer, whatever. And that's it. They go back to living their own, their own sinful lives, never return to church. In some cases, though, you do have Christians, nominal Christians, that actually go through the emotions of living a Christian life. They go to church, they attend Bible studies, they pray, read the Bible, etc. However, as soon as something goes wrong in their lives, maybe a loved one dies, uh, maybe they get ill, um, or they simply get allured by the things of this world, they will inevitably fall away from the faith. In staying with the parable of the sower, nominal Christians would best be described as those that receive the word with joy and endure for a while. However, when tribulations come on account of the word, or when the cares of this world choke the word, they will eventually fall away. I'm sure most of us have probably known Christians like this or know Christians now that, you know, you ask them, are you a Christian? They say yes, but they have no desire to live a holy life, no desire to really, really follow Jesus Christ. And that's what we call nominal Christians. And in Isaiah's day, they were called nominal Israelites just because they were descendants of Abraham. You know, they thought that they were saved, that they were God's people. But as we see throughout scripture, not everyone who says they're a Jew is really a Jew. Now, in John's gospel, there is an episode where Jesus gets into a heated discussion with some nominal Jews who claim to be Abraham's children. And this is what happens in this episode. <laughs> Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, 
if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing Abraham what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. I'll say that again. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. Do you understand what Jesus was saying there? He keeps telling these people the truth of the gospel in plain language. And it keeps going over their head. Why can't they understand? It's because God is not their father. The devil is your father. Back when I was at Christ the King, I, um, I preached a sermon called, Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> and it was, uh, it was on, on, on John, it was John, what was it? First John, chapter 3. And this is where the, John is making a clear distinction about who your father is. You're either, it's either going to be God or it's Satan, the devil. And you're in either one, either, either one is, is, is your father, right? But, Jesus said in verse 16, But, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Then, in verse 17, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it and to hear what you hear and do not hear it. So it's almost as if Jesus wants the disciples to realize how blessed and privileged they really are compared to the Old Testament saints who long to witness the ministry of the Messiah. Now, if you're here today and you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of the gospel, please do not take that privilege for granted. Rejoice. And thank God that he has shown you grace and mercy. God has graciously, graciously revealed himself to you, not only through creation, but also through his written word. He desires to communicate with you. Read your Bible. Study it. Meditate on it. Delight in it. I hope that after going through today's passage, you do realize that not everyone is granted this privilege of hearing and understanding God's word. 
it's always a sad situation when I come across people who tell me, you know what, I've, I've tried reading the Bible and, and I can't understand it. I don't know what it means. I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on. It's, it's, it's all Greek to me. I don't know. So they, they put it away and never to pick it up again. Well, whenever I hear people that say that, you know, I, I have to wonder myself if they're even truly born again to, be, to begin with. Right? Uh, the Bible is, it's, it's, it has its mysteries and stuff, but if, you, if you're truly born again and you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God has equipped you to understand the message of the gospel. Um, if you don't understand it, if, if you're having problems with it and you just don't have a desire to even pick it up, then I might, I might question whether you've been born again or not. Now, please don't understand what I'm, what I'm saying here. I don't want you to, to think that you have to know every mystery of the Bible or be some theological wizard like our man Beto is back there. Right, Beto? Yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, but it does take a lifetime of studying God's word to come to a proper understanding of it. At the end of the day, it's only God's chosen people that will not only hear and understand the word, but also bear fruit, as the parable of the sower says. If you're wondering what it means to bear fruit, I'll give you the gist of it. There's basically two aspects of bearing fruit. Number one, it means that you're being a wise steward of the gifts and talents that God has given you for his kingdom. Every one of you that's been born again has been given a spiritual gift to use for the church and for those outside the church as well. So if, you've been a fa- if you're being a faithful steward, that means you're, that you're bearing fruit. In addition, number two, it is also displaying the positive attributes of a godly character described in the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This type of fruit bearing is a distinguishing mark between a genuine born-again Christian and a nominal Christian. I want to leave you with these words from Second Peter. Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I'll say that again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Let's pray.